Welcome to Doing Good Business, the podcast where personal and professional development meet. I'm Laura Heacock, a leadership coach and talent acquisition consultant, and I'm joined every week by my co-host, Kelly Stewart of The Positive Business, training you to bring positive business practices into any company. Doing Good Business is the podcast that teaches you that doing good business is not only possible, it's profitable. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Doing Good Business. Continuing in our theme for the month, which is disruption, in case you missed our first episode, we do like to kick off the year with a bang around here. Kelly and I are so excited to introduce you to our guest today. Her name is Mary Alice Duff, and she's the founder of a clothing company in the Philadelphia area called Alice Alexander. And uh, I think once you hear her introduce herself, you'll understand why we asked her to be our guest this month. So Mary Alice, welcome to Doing Good Business. Tell us a little bit about, you know, who you are in the world and, and what you do. Hi, sure. Thanks for having me on. Uh, yeah, my name is Mary Alice. I am the owner of Alice Alexander. We are a size-inclusive, ethically, and sustainably made women's apparel company. Uh, we're totally vertically integrated. That's just a fancy way of saying we design, pattern, cut, sew, and retail every single piece in our collection right here in Philadelphia and ship it around the world. That is awesome. So you are talking to two ladies from uh, the Philadelphia area, uh, you know, born and raised-ish. I know, Kelly, you spent a good amount of your early days in, in New Jersey, but close enough for, for these purposes. And, you know, I love what you're yes. doing for the fashion industry and that you're doing it from the Philadelphia area. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm from Havertown. I grew up right outside Philly, but my mother's from Philly, my father's from Philly, my husband's from Philly, his parents are from Philly, so <laughs> we go way back. Very cool. How far do you, does your brand go? Like, what lines are you, you know, across the country? Are you international? How far is the reach? Uh, international. We have regular customers in New Zealand and Australia. Um, oh we just picked up a new customer in Japan. We have customers in South Korea. Canada is very popular. Uh, Europe is tough for us because of the duties and taxes. They're just a little high, uh, I think, for our mm. European customers. Uh, and then all throughout the United States. Very cool. Very cool. Well, I'll just dig in. This is Laura. Um, so I am, for those of you that, you know, maybe only know the voice behind the podcast and don't know me in person, I'm a woman who has spent my entire life somewhere on the border between, you know, plus size and average size. And I've straddled both sides of that spectrum in clothing. And I know that the options are extremely different. Um, you know, you go into any store, like even Target, you know, there's a plus size section and it's maybe a quarter of the size, if you're lucky, of the regular size section. And, you know, to me, to hear size inclusive and plus all of the ethical things that you just mentioned about your brand, like that really epitomizes disruption. And I'm just curious, you know, what caused you to start this? You know, why did you decide that this was the brand that you were going to do? Why did you, why was disrupting the fashion industry such an important thing for you? Yeah. So, you know, uh, I actually am not a classically trained fashion designer. I didn't go to fashion school. Um, I was just a plus size person trying to dress yourself. Um, I was working in the nonprofit sector. Uh, I had gone to grad school for social work and law and social policy. And I landed my dream job. You know, I was uh, running programming at a fairly large nonprofit here in Philadelphia, uh, really building my expertise in poverty alleviation. Um, I got married. I had a baby. I gained weight. And I went from being about a 14, which is like the uh, cutoff for when you yep. can uh, stop shopping in mm -hmm. um, like, like what I would call like mall stores or big box stores like Ann Taylor and and again, this is like five years ago. So these are before these brands had expanded their lines. Um, and so I was looking for a wool pencil skirt. Um, I 
at that time I was about size 18 and I had money to spend. I had $250 burning a hole in my pocket and I was looking for a 100% wool lined pencil skirt. And it didn't need to be anything fancy. I just wanted it to be black and wool. And I looked everywhere and I could not find a wool pencil skirt. And it just struck me how ridiculous it was that someone with money to spend couldn't find a skirt in their size in really well-made mm-hmm. materials. Everything was polyester, uh, all the nicer materials like Siri or things or brands targeted at Nordstrom's, like they all topped out at a 12. And these were designer mm-hmm. 12s. So they're smaller than like a regular 12 that most people are accustomed to. So you know, no way I'm fitting in that. Um, and it just struck me that this was ridiculous. So I started sewing my own clothes. Uh, my grandmother taught me to sew as a young girl um, here in Philly in her row home in Bradford. <laughs> And uh, she taught me to sew, and I had just applied that to, like, sewing costumes and curtains and pillows, you know, home good type things for my house. Um, and it struck me, like, wait a minute, I could just make my own clothes. And so bit by bit, I started replacing everything in my wardrobe because it was junk. Um, it was a lot of maternity clothes, even though mm-hmm. I had had a baby, like, a year and a half before that. Um, mm-hmm. And really started building a wardrobe piece by piece that was all natural fibers, really well made. And I just started to appreciate the craft of sewing. Um, And then I started researching the fashion industry and realizing how corrupt it was, how dirty it was, how uh, the majority of our garments are produced by young women in developing countries who are being paid next to nothing to make these things. Mm -hmm. And here I am, a social worker, advocating for poor folks every day, can't find clothes that fit me, and the clothes that I can find that fit me are poorly made and made by women who are being exploited. (laughs) And it was just like, whoa, this is all awful. Um, And so the more and more research I did, the more and more I realized there was this huge market gap. And I realized I had a knack for fabrication and silhouette and fit, and that if I could get some help and figure out, you know, how to build a business and how to design and how to make this thing happen, that I could actually turn it into a brand. So I went to design school while working full time and I came up with some money and a business plan and uh, told my husband this is what we were doing. And I quit my job and launched a company. Oh, my goodness. Right. That's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) So this is Kelly. And I'm listening to your fabulous story. and, And I think I speak for Laura when I say we both feel that doing good business is this like best kind of disruption because it's positive Mm -hmm. disruption. Right. And when I think about what led you there and what you're doing, you know, it's just, it's wonderful. You are so highly motivated to demonstrate your, your really genuine concern for people and the planet and, and still have an ambition for profit, right? Woohoo. So that you can stay in business and, and right. Yes. So, you know, that's a wonderful thing. And that sounds like just being in business is enough. But when you took that business plan and you started to show it to other people maybe who had been in business or you started talking about it, I'm super <laughs> curious, what were their reactions? Oh, they you, laughed in my know? face. <laughs> right, right. Straight up. That's like, what I was afraid of, yeah. Yeah, so um, again, like not having been in the fashion industry, I had no idea what I was doing. And now I, mm-hmm. I say like half jokingly, whatever the fashion industry does, we're just going to do the opposite because we know how corrupt <laughs> and terrible it is. Um, right. and it's so, so far so good. But, um, when I first started networking and reaching out to people in the industry, um, people told me that plus size women will not spend money on clothes, uh, mm-hmm. that plus size women hate their bodies and they're not going to invest in silk and wool. I've proven. Why do you think that, that is? 
<laughs> Why do you think that is? Do you think there's a relationship there? Just a question. Right. Uh, so just all this bullshit, all, all these things that weren't true, uh, that I would never mm-hmm. find employees, which is hilarious because I have an <sighs> inbox full of resumes despite not having any open positions. Um, Love that, it. Uh, no one would be willing, no one's going to pay more for something just because it's made ethically, proven that wrong. Um, wow. Yeah, so I've had, I've had people who, um, uh, I was in an incubator program and uh, a woman was set up to be my mentor and she, uh, I showed her my business plan and she declined to mentor me. Um, I've had people. Oh my goodness. Straight, yep. I've had, uh, I went and visited a factory in New Jersey. Uh, I went and visited a brand when I was first getting started out. And as I was leaving, my husband had come with me just to learn the uh, person we went to visit. He grabbed my husband's arm and he was like, don't let her do this. Wow. uh, Yeah, it's just been constant. And the only, only, only people I hear this from are industry veterans. Mm -hmm. I don't hear from customers. Mm -hmm. When I talk to women, it's when or when they find us on Instagram, it's a, oh, my God, finally. Mm-hmm. Finally, right. like I've been looking for someone who's creating clothes for diverse bodies that aren't, isn't club wear, right? Yeah. Isn't mm-hmm. polyester garbage, um, isn't a muumuu. Like, mm-hmm. I just want contemporary, modern, but vintage inspired, really high end materials. We do that. And so the customer is like, oh my gosh, where have you been? But every, every single industry veteran has either laughed at me, told me I was nuts, declined to work with me. Um, yeah, but I, we've wow. been in the game now two years and just hired my seventh person and, you know, I think we're doing all right. So yeah, I, they don't know what That's they don't know. Awesome. Uh, so, yeah. well, you know, I thought about that. Um, again, this is Kelly, when you were saying that it was the industry veterans and, and basically, you know, you're saying just do the opposite of whatever they're doing. I think sometimes, <laughs> yeah. you know, having those blinders on, right. It keeps mm-hmm. you unencumbered <laughs> by right. other people's perceptions and realities. And right. that kind of creates a path, right. For you going forward. And I, I have to stay on this for a second in terms of positive disruption, but I know you have a background in social work and, and, mm-hmm. and serving others, right. What do you think is your greatest strength in serving others that you bring to this business as well? Hmm. That's a good question. <laughs> um, I think my greatest strength is the ability to connect um, systems and big juicy mm-hmm. issues down into individual actions so that it actually feels workable. So yeah. uh, my expertise was, um, I went to graduate school for policy work. So really good about thinking about the scale of a problem, the root of a problem, you know, and how can we as individual actors affect that, whether through um, voting, obviously, lobbying our representatives, community organizing, our purchasing power, all of that. And so um, when I, I think my greatest strength that I bring is that no one can talk about my brand the way I do. Um, Mm -hmm. and I also think I have a really strong skill in that I'm able to invite our customers in, you know, we don't really even call them customers. We call them our community so that you don't have to purchase from us to be a part of what we're doing here. Um, Mm -hmm. and I think that is what I bring to the table as far as a leader goes. Um, and my social work background has served me exceptionally well in this. Um, I always say you meet people where they are. So, and what that means is Mm -hmm. that. 
Um, so we have employees who have all sorts of challenges in their lives. Um, and my objective is to meet them where they are so that they can do their best work. So if that means mm-hmm. that they need to work 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. or 6 a.m. to 2 p.m. or whatever it is, like we figure out how to make that work. If they need to hop out in the middle of the day to go to a meeting or a doctor's appointment or um, a, a parent-teacher conference, and all of this sounds like normal, but when you're doing shift work that's manual labor, um, mm-hmm. you know, you're not sitting behind a desk, like that's unheard of. Um, so it's those little things where you're meeting somebody where they are so that they can do their best work. Um, and I have found that that has really been the difference, uh, in how you keep employees. So we have a hundred percent retention with our employees. Um, that's how you keep them on board, how you keep them engaged, um, uh, and really performing to the best of their ability and also happy, <laughs> which is, yeah, I, that's, I mean, Kelly and I talk <laughs> so much about, you know, like retention, the job market's crazy right now. It's still a very candidate driven mm-hmm. market. And, you know, we talk a lot about retention. And, you know, one of the things that I was curious about, and you really just answered this question before I had a chance to ask it is how does your, you know, like, I think of you as somebody who really operates from that perspective of being a disruptor, right? Like all of the, you know, tried and true industry people said that'll never work. Please don't let her do mm-hmm. it, all that kind of stuff. And you're clearly proving them wrong. And, and it does translate into the one on one, it does translate into your role, you know, you have this company, you have these seven employees, and you're not sitting there and saying, okay, Susie, your shift is eight to three. And, you know, too bad if Tommy has a soccer game or, you mm-hmm. know, Dolly has a vet appointment or whatever, you know what I mean? Like that, that concept of meeting people where they're at, I think is another thing that's like, it is unheard of. It is absolutely unheard of in the shift work world. It is right. really not even mm-hmm. all that big in like formal large corporations. Like they're kind of starting to dip their toe into it and people like to tout their work-life balance, but it's not right. really truly a business practice, like I'm curious if it shows up in other ways in your leadership, you know, meeting people where they're at and the flex schedules, like how else do you bring, you know, kind of that, that disruptor nature that is, you know, responsible for the success of your brand? How is that showing up as, you know, the leader of these folks and how you engage with them? Oh, goodness. That's a loaded question. (laughs) (laughs) We like Um, to ask the easy ones. (laughs) Yeah. No, I think like, especially because all these folks, they come from having worked for other people in the fashion Mm -hmm. industry. Um, And they kind of come in and they're like, wait, why aren't you yelling at us? Or, right. And this, these, these are domestic workers. I've had employees come to me and tell me that they made a mistake on something at their old job and they had to pay $110. That's almost a day's pay. Oh my God. Right. And the, right. Like the fact that that happens here is just complete insanity to me. So like you have to build that into your cost, right? Mistakes are going to happen. Mm-hmm. People are going to get sick. They're going to sew mm-hmm. something with um, the buttons you don't like, and they're going to have to take the buttons off and put new buttons on. But yelling at them or being punitive doesn't engender support, right? Because when you're in a startup like we are, and I don't usually use that word startup, but um, when you're in a small business like we are, shit is going to get hard. And you want people on your team. And if you're not kind to your team members and you aren't treating them with the respect and you're not giving them autonomy, when shit gets hard, they're not going to show up. So, yeah, it's it's the right thing to do, but it also is in a way self-serving, right? Because, like, I want my people to show up for me. So I show up for them. Absolutely. Right. So, and I found that, you know, when shit does get hard, when we have an incredible deadline, when... Like right now, we have a backlog of 134 orders to fulfill. 
Hmm. We just buckle down and we get it done. And it's because we're a team who treats each other with respect and there isn't a hierarchy and we're not hoarding knowledge from each other. And if one person learns a faster way to sew something, she shares it with the other person because we all want to win. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I think that's how it shows up every day. Awesome. That's awesome. And there's another way where Laura and I are alike. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we use the same words. Not only do we yeah. sound alike, but then we also actually use the exact same words. <laughs> Brain is connected in some places. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. One of the other things that I think is so apparent about your brand is the inclusivity and diversity in your marketing. So, you know, obviously mm-hmm. you're, you know, creating clothing that is size inclusive, but, you know, even still, like I was just in Target over the weekends and not to keep like harping on them, but even in the plus size section, the model's like, she might be a size eight or 10. Yeah, <laughs> and so right. yeah. yeah, like the women on your website are body diverse, you know, race, uh, racially diverse, ethnically diverse, um, ability mm-hmm. diverse. And, like, is that a part of your core values? You know, how do you continue to do that when the majority of the industry is still showing like excruciatingly thin white woman is the norm? Right. Uh, that is my motivation to keep doing it. Mm. Because <laughs> if you if you go on the Instagram and you like research a hashtag and you can do it right now and look at the hashtag ethical fashion, mm-hmm. it could all be the same account. That's how much they all look alike. They're all thin. They're all young. Right. They're all white. And they're all wearing the same colors. It's like earthy, terracotta, and sage, and like oat. Those are the colors, right? So Mm -hmm. my motivation and what I have said from the get-go is um, if we don't serve plus-size women and if we don't create a diversity of style, we're never going to put a dent in the sustainable fashion movement. Um, I think, Larry, you put in the beginning, you've teetered on the edge of plus and average your whole life. Actually, plus Mm -hmm. is the average. 60% of American women were a size 14 or larger. And yet we're treated as a niche target market when we're not. We are the majority. And so um, for me, when a woman comes onto our website and she sees the diversity and she sees uh, that we primarily focus plus size models and even our quote unquote straight size models, our models who are smaller than a size 12, they're usually an eight or a 10. We do that because when we want a woman to, uh, when she comes on our website, we want her to feel seen, like this is a place for her. Um, Mm -hmm. And if she does come to our website, she doesn't feel that way. We're not doing our job. Right. So, you know, you touted our diversity. I think we have a hell of a long way to go. We need bigger models on our website. I need a 24 plus model on my website. You know, uh, I don't have that right now. I need uh, non-binary folks on my website because every time a person comes on our website, I want them to feel like, okay, this is a place for me. Oh, Ethical and sustainable fashion is something I can get into because, oh, look, there's people here excuse me, who look like me. Um, and when I was searching for clothes, I didn't see those people. Um, and it was very clear that, oh, this isn't a place for me. I'm too fat for this. Mm-hmm. Clearly, mm-hmm. fat people don't spend money on nice clothes, right? Um, so yeah, I don't know. Whatever way that, people that, like, these brands are, I was like, I don't know a single, you know, plus size woman that doesn't want to spend money on clothes to feel better about her. But I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, so it's, it's really, so that's like a whole con- that could be a whole podcast. In and of <laughs> you what, could. <laughs> what I found talking to classically trained designers who get no plus size pattern making education in college. I mean, none. It's not discussed in the textbooks, 
uh, women's bodies, they are idealized. You know, they have these perfect proportions, bust waist hips. They're all five foot seven. I mean, it's just complete insanity. And the the old trope is that plus size women just want to be thin women. And so they don't invest mm. money in clothes because they say that the clothes aren't going to fit in six months because I'm going to lose 50 pounds and I'm going to mm. fit in a smaller size. But I can say mm. now with confidence, I am a plus size woman who has no intention of getting smaller. Um, I can say that the body positive and feminist movements and the fat mm-hmm. acceptance movements are finally creating space for women of size to say, this is who I am. This is my body. I'm comfortable in my body and I'm going to go out and live my best life. Um, mm-hmm. And fashion needs to catch up with that because these women need yeah. to get dressed. You have a great video on your website and I hope our listeners go to, to, to your website and learn more about you and, and watch the video. And and in the video, you mentioned um, making clothes in terms of quality and not quantity Mm -hmm. and that things are made to order. So I love this, right? And I love, I think it furthers that sense of connection that you're creating with people Mm -hmm. as you were just talking about with the, with the images and, and having a community. So Talk a little bit, if you can, um, if you want to, about the pricing then. How did all of this affect your pricing strategies, right? So we know that women want to, of every size, right? They want to feel good and, and buy clothes mm-hmm. that they want to wear. So yeah. how did that affect your pricing? I guess I'm, you know, thinking about what would your conversation be with that woman who chose not to mentor you <laughs> to say, hey, here's the pricing <laughs> strategy I use. And guess what? It's working. <laughs> yeah. So uh, one of the big things is we don't do wholesale. So we don't sell our product to like a third-party retailer. So we aren't in any okay. boutiques. You'll never find us in a department store. We don't sell on Amazon. We don't and nothing. Uh, and by doing that, it allows us to have a price point that is accessible considering the quality and craftsmanship and the labor that goes into each piece. So uh, our employees, so uh, sewers, when they first come on, cutters and sewers, they start at 15 an hour. Uh, so that's a living wage in the city of Philadelphia. And mm-hmm. they quickly move up with uh, skill um, and accuracy. And so um, all of our materials are, <clears throat> excuse me, are biodegradable and eco-friendly. We source from all over the world. We love hemp. We use organic cotton instead of conventional cotton. Uh, we use a really cool innovative fabric called Cupro, which is the leftovers of the cotton plant spun into a fiber that feels just like silk. Uh, we use wow. silk and we use uh, linen and we use a ton of wool. So wool is like one of my absolute favorite things to work with. Um, so we use really high-end materials. We use absolutely no polyester and we use absolutely no rayon or viscose. Uh, all of those mm-hmm. are all pretty toxic. Um, and in fact, these are the textiles that are mostly used in all clothing production. So over half of our clothes are made out of polyester, which a lot of people don't know is actually plastic. So all of the conversation right. we have um, around uh, plastic pollution, and yet we're all wearing plastic on our body mm-hmm. every day. Um, so we're not using that. So a big chunk of our pricing, the retail price point is coming from the quality of fabric. Uh, the other huge chunk, over 22% of each garment's uh, retail price is directly to worker wages. Um, so mm-hmm. on average, a garment takes about four hours to cut and sew, patch, ship, all that good stuff. Um, and then we have, uh, we cover our operating and then we have a pretty modest markup compared to, you know, a brand like Theory or, uh, you know, a brand being sold at Nordstrom who has that additional markup because they're selling from the brand to the department store and then to the customer. Um, so by being direct to consumer, we can have a relatively low markup, of course, still profitable. 
um, because we have to then reinvest in our business because we're still a little itty bitty baby business that has a ton (laughs) of infrastructure things that we have to grow. Um, But yeah, our pricing, uh, I would put us into like the contemporary price point. But I think what's really interesting and something that we need to talk about um, is that the price of clothing has been so depressed since for so long, really since the 80s and 90s, that we have no real measure for what things should cost anymore. So back Mm -hmm. in the, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, up to the 70s, all of our clothing was made domestically, all of it. A small, teeny tiny fraction was set up receive. Uh, then in the 70s, we started putting things over into uh, Asia and uh, South America. And the promise was we can sell you cheaper goods uh, and more of them. And then we can also like create jobs in the developing world. Well, yeah, we got cheap goods and jobs were developed in the developing world, but nobody was helped out of poverty and our clothes just got shittier and shittier. Right. Right. And so mm-hmm. over time, we've just seen the quality of our clothes completely decline. Uh, we are spending less on clothes today that we spent in the 70s, but we're buying more of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, if we kind of think about how little we're actually paying for things, um, no wonder we don't treat them with respect. No wonder those right. clothes are ending up at the Goodwill or in the trash bin after three mm-hmm. or four wears. Um, mm-hmm. So what we're really building in our community is a return to treating clothes as an investment and that, mm-hmm. you know, your wardrobe is only going to contain 20 pieces uh, that you're going to mix and match and wear all year round. Um, so, you know, you're buying a dress that's to $250. You know, you're buying a pair of wool, silk line, flax that are $265, $285. You're going to keep these for a while. And we also make sure that our clothing is alterable. So if you need to let something out or take something in, that's totally doable by either a home seller or a tailor. Um, what a novel think about all these things. I know. <laughs> yeah. Right. right. <laughs> I mean, my grandmother taught me to sew and she was a seamstress herself. And she, every time she looks at modern clothing, she's like, what happened? What is this mm-hmm, made out right. of? Like you can't even, most people can't even identify a fiber by touching it. You know, 50 years ago, well, that was unheard of. You could tell the difference between rayon and silk. And now mm-hmm. people are like, what's that? You know, and so no right. wonder we treat our clothes with disdain and we don't appreciate the craft of sewing. And we're buying so much for so little that we've just completely lost touch with what clothing really is. Mm. I agree. And you're lighting up a portion of my brain going back to when I was growing Damn. up. This is Kelly and my aunt. um would go and she bought better clothes and this would have been Mm -hmm. the seventies, eighties. And she went to a boutique where they knew Mm -hmm. her and she bought a a handful of things every season, you know, they would come out and show and they would alter it for, and it was adorable because she was single. She lived with my grandparents, but we would go over and she would do the fashion show and and she would show us what what she bought and things. And it was really, it was an experience. You know, she was working, she, she had the income to do that. She was buying local, you know, she kept her things for a very long time because they were very well made. And she always had this style that was just classic. So she was always in style, you know, and it is the picture you were painting is so different as I'm running through things in my closet right Mm -hmm. now where I'm like, yep, I'm there with you. Like I get that Mm -hmm. that things you buy and and you're like once or twice and you're like, why did I even buy this? Right. Right. And we're driven to to consumerism and not necessarily to the quality end of it, which is what I love right. about your whole disruption. You've disrupted my brain today, Mary. Right. <laughs> Good. And your aunt, who you said was always so stylish, because style is timeless. 
And it's not that like we're all wearing a uniform, but good style transcends decades. So, Mm -hmm. and and right now we live in this like super trend driven culture where, you know, whatever, like I'm in a fashion group in Facebook and they just drive me nuts because they're always like, is this style of jean in? And I'm like, girl, who cares? Buy a good (laughs) pair of jeans. And if they, if you feel good in them, if they fit, wear them. Like, no, mm-hmm. please do not get pearl embellished jeans. Like what, yeah. what purpose do they serve? But they're trending <laughs> yeah. and like my favorite Instagram influencer. I'm like, oh, I just, how did we get here? And right. I have to admit, I was that person. Like when I was in college, I was buying all the H&M and Zara and all that junk because I didn't understand personal style. And so mm-hmm. I was just trying to emulate. I was just trying to create a look that I saw in a magazine or mm-hmm. I saw somebody else wearing. And now as I've gotten older and I've learned to appreciate clothing, it's like style is so much harder to achieve. And I think that's why we default to whatever's trendy. Yeah. Cause it's mm-hmm. easier because you're just copying something. Yeah. But your aunt, that is just, I think we all should aspire to that. Finding your personal style, figuring out what that look and feels like. I call my personal style uh, comfy glam that's 70s inspired. So uh, I, I gravitate, yeah, I gravitate towards 70s silhouettes, but it's always a little glam. So I love gold. Um, I love a little sheen in my fabric, but it has to be comfortable. Like I'm not going to be caught dead in a pair of spanks. Um, I'm not mm-hmm. wearing right. heels. That's not happening. You know, I want my bra to be comfortable. My undies to be comfortable. So my clothing <laughs> mm-hmm. needs to match that. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's my personal style. But I think if women focus a little bit more on cultivating that, um, getting dressed would be so much easier and you'd be spending mm-hmm. so much less money on clothes. Yeah. You'd be turning over your wardrobe every couple of weeks, you know? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Better for the planet. Love it. And better for Love it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad, Meryl, I'm glad you mentioned profitable in, in, you know, talking about your business because Kelly and I talk all the time. This way of business can be profitable. You can be concerned exactly. with the planet and mm-hmm. with the environment and with, you know, size inclusivity and diversity and all of these things that are, you know, tenants of doing good business and still be profitable. Like we want these, honestly, we want mm-hmm. these businesses to be dramatically profitable because then that will start to change, you know, the business world in general. When people start to right. see companies like Alice Alexander that are doing all of these things that are concerned about all of these things and that are paying living wages and that are treating their employees with respect, all of these things that you've mentioned, it will start to show, you know, that we just talked about it's not only possible, it's profitable. And, you know, I just thank you so much for really exemplifying all of those things. And, you know, really want to leave our listeners with just a chance to obviously we'll link to your website, we'll link to the video that Kelly mentioned. But, you know, what are you excited about in, you know, as early 2020, or as the year progresses, you know, what should Mm -hmm. we watch out for? How can people buy some of your amazing pieces? What are you excited that you want to leave us with? So I am really excited um, about uh, hopefully to be uh, potentially moving into a new space. Um, So right now we're operating out of about a thousand square feet and the goal is to move into about 3000 square feet. And what that would allow us to do is create a place where our community members could come and see how the clothes are made, get involved in the making of clothing, attend sustainability and sewing and mending workshops. Um, and really create a place for folks to gather and talk about fashion, talk about personal style and inclusivity and ethical mm. and workers' rights and all of that amazing stuff, um, really take the conversation offline. So that is what I'm really excited about, uh, getting people together in real life um, and just growing. I love the team we've built. 
Um, and we're going to continue to build that team, but slowly and thoughtfully. Uh, I'm really conscientious of the way in which companies grow today. Um, you know, Good. we have mm-hmm. uh, resisted startup investor capital um, because it doesn't fit with our values. Um, and I really just want to be intentional about how we grow this thing so that we can uh, maintain this culture that we've built of inclusivity, of meeting people where they are. Um, so, yeah, that's what I'm excited about in 2020. Awesome. This is great. Well, we could not be happier for you. And I hope that our (laughs) listeners are feeling as inspired as we are right now with the way you are really being a positive disruptor. And we love Mm -hmm. it. We need it. We need more of it. So uh, (laughs) as Laura said, we want you to be successful. And um, we hope that our listeners will find inspiration in what you've said and also check out your your very cool website and learn more and and become involved. Yeah. So purchases. Uh, if you're interested in purchasing a piece, you can go to our website, alicealexander.co. Pieces are made to order. Uh, right now, we have a really backed up lead time, um, but that should sort itself of out by spring as our team grows. Um, yeah, and so pieces are made to order in about three weeks, and you can check our size chart to get your size. And folks are always welcome to message us or email us with specific questions um, if they need help figuring out their size or piece. Perfect. And we'll link, you guys are Alice Alexander Co. on all the social medias on Instagram, Facebook, and Pinterest. And we'll link to all of that so people can start to see all of the glorious things that you are putting out into the world and uh, take advantage of the way that you are disrupting and doing good business. Great. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much, Mary Alice. It's been amazing talking to you. And uh, we're pretty excited about what you're doing. Thanks for bringing it to our podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Doing Good Business, designed to bring out the best in you and your company. We welcome your reviews and ratings and would love to hear from you. Send your comments, suggestions, and questions through our online form at doinggoodbusiness.com. Stay in touch with us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. The Doing Good Business podcast is brought to you by Laura Heacock of Laura Heacock Consulting for all of your coaching and talent acquisition needs and Kelly Stewart of The Positive Business, helping you incorporate the social business paradigm into your company. Learn more about us and our respective services at the Doing Good Business website. Thanks again for listening and remember to expect good things from everything you do.